All right, chapter 16. Everybody have a book? Everybody have a book? Perfect. Just checking. <laughs> well, well, well. So we're almost to the end. Chapter 16 and then, well, that's it. Yeah, you got a little little blurb there at the end. I didn't read it because I'm. Oh, is that what it is? Oh. Are they his books? Is he trying to sell something? Huh. Oh, the New English Bible. Wow. Idiosyncratic, yeah, unreliable, sure. It's beautiful, though. Jerusalem Bible. Wow. Huh. Interesting. All right, chapter 16. Who wants to start? <laughs> Do you think it was anti-sex, or was it anti-sex your way? No, I didn't mean it like that. I just meant the world's way. I was a little caught off guard, too. Not that I didn't expect it, because he did talk about it earlier. But he had a great thing about relationships and beauty and justice. And then all of a sudden, it was a bit tangential. But it, I mean, it all fits together. It all makes sense. If you can read this, if you hopefully you read this chapter, at least with what you heard last week, which was um, the church is Christ in the world. And so missions is simply churching the world. And if you can understand it that way, the church is Christ in the world. And Christ, as he says, um, because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he is the new creation in his body. You know, he talks about the dawning of the new creation, heaven's coming back, but you already have that in the body of Jesus because whatever will happen in the future can already be found in Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as you bear Jesus to the world, you're actually bearing, the, you're actually bearing to the world the new creation. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. Um, that you are a key component in the new creation coming to fruition. It's about you. It's all about you. Because it's all about Jesus. <laughs> and you and Jesus are one and the same. Uh, someone said to me the other someone said to me on Sunday, I said, I said, wow, you're Jesus. And this person, this woman said, I can't be Jesus. I just do what Jesus says. Now, I understand, but um, there is a, there is a point in the Christian life, baptism, Eucharist, absolution, where you and Jesus are indistinguishable. Paul says it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, physically, tangibly, concretely, completely, body, blood, soul, and divinity. All of Jesus resides in you, and then he goes on to say in Romans. I reside in Christ. There's no difference. Or as St. Paul says, the two become one flesh. And then he goes on to say, Behold, I tell you a mystery in the Latin. Behold, I tell you a sacrament. I am referring to Jesus in the church. 
So Jesus and the church are indistinguishable. This gets back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, so when you bear yourself to the world, you bear Christ to the world. And when you bear Christ to the world, you're bearing the new creation to the world. Jesus is the new creation in a body. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Make sense? Okay. That ups the ante a little bit. That means it's not, you know, it's not just about, uh, well, it ups the ante, but it shouldn't scare you. The sermon on Wednesday was all about the naturalness of the Christian life. Okay? You're, you're, the Christian life is not unnatural. It's unnatural to sin. Sin makes you subhuman. N.T. Wright says that. You know, sin, uh, or repentance returns you to genuine humanness. It's the same thing with the Christian life. To not live it is actually subhuman. But to live it and rejoice in it is the fulfillment of what humanity was intended to be. And you see that back in Eden. Okay? Okay, so what jumped out at you? I could just, you know, I could talk for an hour, but that wouldn't be fun. Fun for me, but maybe not fun for you. What did you see? How about how he starts? The point of Christianity isn't to go to heaven when you die. Startling. Well, tell me why it was startling. Have you never heard that before? Oh, it was startling because he said it, but why was it startling? Yeah, right. It goes back, I think, to very early on where he says there are three views of heaven. And then he talks about it again in this chapter. There's pantheism where heaven and earth are indistinguishable, right? So you look at a tree and you say, that's God, right? Um, you oftentimes have people say, well, isn't God in the tree? Well, he is in the tree, but he's not necessarily there for you. So you need to be in contact with the places where God has promised to be for you. And though that's a very slim that's a very slim uh, range of places. Altar, pulpit, font, absolution, and the Christian. Okay? Uh, so you're a means of grace. So they can look at you and say, wow, that's God. And you can say, yeah, that's right. So pantheism, they're one and the same. What was the other one? Was it Gnosticism? Deism. Well, it's kind of like Gnosticism. Where there's a separation between heaven and earth. There's a large chasm between the two. And then the third one, the Christian understanding, is where heaven and earth intersect at certain places. So with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, right then there's an intersection. Wherever you have Jesus, you have the intersection of heaven and earth because Jesus is heaven in a body. Okay? Wherever you have Jesus, that's where heaven meets earth. So Mary's womb, boom, heaven drops down to earth. That's why Luther writes the great hymn, from heaven above to earth I come to bring good news to everyone. Right? So at the incarnation, heaven drops down to earth. And now that he's gone back to heaven, the temptation is to say, heaven and earth never touch, which is a very reformed way of looking at Jesus. Heaven and earth do touch because Jesus has a body right now in heaven at the Father's right hand. But he also says that body comes to earth at the altar, at the pulpit, at the font, in the confessional, and in the Christian. And when you have Jesus... There you have heaven. So the Christian life is not simply about getting to heaven. Heaven's here. Heaven's here. Getting to heaven is getting to the altar. 
Okay? So what's beyond that? That's what N.T. Wright is trying to push you toward. I asked the eighth grade two weeks ago. I mean, it's funny because I, I don't know if this is characteristically Lutheran, but Lutherans certainly think it often. That, um, and I guess you can understand it maybe. That uh, Lutherans have Lutherans typically think life is just about getting to heaven, you know, as long as you stay one step out of hell. And I know that's those are broad strokes, and it's not fair to everyone. But but there are many Lutherans that say, I'm just trying to get to heaven. And there are some people who will just make it in. And there are some people uh, who are in uh, and in, you know, in even further than they could imagine already. So it's about how do you live your life then on earth knowing that heaven is a given. Okay? So I ask these eighth graders, why are you a Christian? To a person, what do you think they said? So I can get to heaven. So then I said, how many of you are scared you're going to go to hell? How many people do you think raised their hand? Zero. <laughs> so just think about this logically. No one is scared they're going to hell in that class. And yet they're all Christians, apparently, just to get to heaven. What kind of sense does that make? Okay? So you're Christian. Yeah, there are some people who are scared to go to hell. And at the end of the day, we're going to say, thank God he is merciful. Uh, and they just got in. That is great. In fact, that's what you should hope for everyone. But there are some people who have no fear of going to hell and shouldn't be afraid of going to hell, and yet they say, I'm a Christian just to get to heaven, which really diminishes then forgiveness. So I asked the eighth grade, what's forgiveness? Well, to have my sins washed away. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness, as you heard on Wednesday night, is not simply I forgive you, now we're all squared up. It's I forgive you, we're all squared up. Now what's the next best thing we can be doing? It pushes you out toward a life. Forgiveness is Jesus, Jesus applied. So if you can find it in Jesus, the natural thing for the Christian would be able to find it in themselves. In themselves. Okay? In themselves. When you look in the mirror, you should say, is that Jesus or is that not Jesus? When you live your life, you should say, am I living the Jesus life or am I not? Not in the way of the law, although sometimes it is, but in the way of the gospel. What more would Jesus have me do? Because Jesus is always working. If we're one and the same, I should be too. That makes sense? None of this is in the way of the law. Like, by God, you better go out and do it. It's all in the way of the gospel. Or, well, let me ask you this. Are good works law or gospel to Jesus? Doing good works. Is that a good word or a bad word for Jesus? I just mean for Jesus. I'm just talking about the man who walked on the earth for 33 years. When he did good things, when he raised the widow's son at Nain, was that law or gospel? Well, it's, well, it's one or the other. Yeah, so if it's, okay, okay, good. So it's part of his nature. So in Eden, it was just Jesus, right? So it's part of his nature, so it's of the gospel. Are living out the ten words, you know them as the Ten Commandments, is that law or gospel to Jesus? Does he rejoice in being obedient to his Father and remembering the Sabbath day? Or does that word come uh, as demand and force? He rejoices. Okay? So whatever goes for Jesus goes for you. He rejoices in doing his Father's will. It's a gospel word. So when we say, when N.T. Wright says, the Christian life, is bidding you, come rejoice, come live. 
He even says at the very end, it's gift and blessing. It's a very Lutheran way of talking. <laughs> I mean, I, did you read that? I have it underlined well, and I have an exclamation mark next to it that says brilliant. He said, I'm just going to read it to you. Just the last, at least the last, second, the penultimate paragraph on 236 Here's would be the thing, thing man. to help you. I'm already ahead of you. Read last two paragraphs. There you go, buddy. <laughs> well, All right. Now, as they search for that, you might, um, you might, you might mention the um, call you got asking for membership this week from that fellow. Oh, yes, right. This is the sort of thing that does, shows you the shift in the world. Yeah, this is, um, you know, after the catechumenate, we had, we had a very good run at the catechumenate. We learned a few things. There's some things we didn't do well um, and some things we need to fix and some things that went very well, and now we want to tweak and make better. But I think overall, I think, it, in fact, it would be nice to hear from some of you in the way of the gospel, uh, what you thought. Helpful, you know, all of you can tell me what you didn't like. I can tell you what I didn't like. But if you could tell me, you know, a little constructive criticism, what you thought worked well, what you thought didn't work well, if you were involved. You know, if you weren't involved, if you didn't come on Saturday mornings, it's very difficult to criticize. But if you were involved, it'd be helpful to hear what you had to say. But it's very strange to hear now calls as people calling. Because, you know, now we have, we just heard we have 80 people on a prospective new member list. So we just brought in 37 plus 18 kids, baptized two adults, baptized six kids, and now we have another 80 people on the list who are at least interested. That doesn't mean they're all going to come, but it means they're at least interested. But the calls are shifting now. You know, two or three years ago, and probably well before that, people used to call and say, I want to send my kid to the school. How can I join the church? Which, which I give them credit. At least they're honest. There's something to be said for that. But they tell you right up front what they're in it for. Well, now the calls have shifted. This guy just called. Um, well, I'll give you two calls. A young family called and said, we had our baby baptized two years ago. Um, and she said, I had a really rough pregnancy uh, and a really rough post-pregnancy. But it was very strange. She said, I'm going to tell you from the get-go, we have been very unfaithful. And I am very, very sorry about that. We want to come back, but we don't know if you'll take us. Will you baptize our second kid, and can we come to the new member class? like, that is great. I said, yeah. I said, well, you know what? You're in luck because today, I think it was the 23rd, I said, guess what? It's St. John the 23rd is fresh start day. So you called on the right day. It's a fresh start. We love you. Come back. We'll baptize your kid, bring you to the new member class. It'll be great. Well, then another guy called and said, left me a voicemail. Hi, I've been visiting. I would like to talk to you about how I can experience the fullness of the gifts at the Eucharist. Please call me back. Whoa. I, I'm thinking, this can't be true. <laughs> so it's very strange how, the, how there's been a shift. And I don't know, I have an idea of what it is, but it's just strange that those are the calls we're receiving now. We still get people to say, I want to send my kid to the school, can I join? And sometimes they even say, I'd like the tuition break. Is that, does that happen? How soon do I get that? Do I get it when I'm in the class? Yeah, we'll work it out for you. But there is, there's been a shift. So page 236. Let me read you here the last two paragraphs. When you see the dawn breaking, you think back to the darkness in a new way. Just think about that in your own life. That was, that was DeBus. Remember I read you the thing from DeBus two weeks ago? When the terrors of the night have passed and the dawn begins to break, then emerges forgiveness, and from forgiveness emerges love. Sin is not simply the breaking of the law. You don't just commit little petty sins. You're a sinner to your core. 
It's the missing of an opportunity. Having heard the echoes of a voice, we are called to come and meet the speaker. We are invited to be transformed by the voice itself, the word of the gospel. It's a living word. It hits your ear and changes you. The word which declares that evil has been judged, that's justice, that the world has been put to rights, that earth and heaven are joined forever, and that the new creation has begun. We are called to become people who can speak and live and paint and sing that word so that those who have heard its echoes can come and lend a hand in the larger project. It's about bringing everybody in. That is the opportunity that stands before us as gift and possibility. It's given to you. It comes from Jesus himself. Christian holiness is not, as people often imagine, a matter of denying something good. Eat your steak and drink your wine. It's about growing up and grasping something even better. That's what Eden is. Every day is better than the last. Made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of the present world. It is time in the power of the spirit to take up our proper role, our fully human role, as agents, heralds, and stewards of the new day that is dawning. That, quite simply, is what it means to be Christian, to follow Jesus Christ into the new world, God's new world, which he has thrown open before us. Wow. Amen. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Okay? And you notice he doesn't even call it the new creation. He calls it new creation, meaning it has completely permeated this creation. It's, it's changed the being of this creation. This creation is defined by another creation. Okay, so it's not the new creation. Oh, we hope it comes. It is new creation. It is here right now. Okay? React a little. Yes, it is. Yeah. Because it's always, um, it's always about giving oneself to someone else. Um, and that sometimes is misunderstood. We don't need to say any more, but you all get it. It's about giving yourself to someone else. That's why Jesus says marriage is a picture of Jesus in the church. He always gives himself to his bride. He's never selfish. Okay? Giving and receiving, that is... That's an, that's an icon of the gospel. That's what happens in the church. That's partly why, um, you know, the Eucharist is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. He gives and you receive. Okay? What else? Wow, I really didn't expect no one to have. Well, Carol, I always expect you to have something. Save us, Carol. Oh. Well. There's a law, yes, every word can be said two ways. I will take that in the way of the gospel.
All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. On the on that last two paragraphs. Okay. Tell us what they are. Right. I underline that too, actually. Yeah. why the psalmist can say, you know, in your anger do not sin. Anger, I mean, there is a sense, and I can't believe I'm going to use this term, there is, there is a real sense of righteous anger, um, but, you need to be, but we need to be very careful because sometimes what we perceive as righteous anger is actually vengeance. But you are right to not allow it to dictate your life, how often um, we're just angry. And that's when anger runs. That's when anger runs the verb. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. I actually I find the thing on page two twenty six actually. Uh, I don't disagree about the thing on page two twenty nine, which you just read. I find the thing on page two twenty six even more helpful, um, and I find it helpful because I think oftentimes we misunderstand what Jesus does on the cross. Uh, and part of this then plays out when we say, well, God still has wrath in his deeds. Um, you know, Jesus on the cross exhausts the wrath of the Father. Every, every ounce of wrath the Father has is poured out upon Jesus. And so that should come as good news, not bad news. The good news is you can't outsin Jesus. This is why Luther can say he's the greatest adulterer, he's the greatest thief, he's the greatest murderer. All, it's not just that he becomes sin. He actually embodies the sins of the cosmos, past, present, and future. And the Father then exhausts his wrath. This is the atonement theology he's talking about. He exhausts the power of evil so that it can't be passed on to the next generation. And you know, in the scriptures, there's a very prominent word for passing on. St. Paul uses it about the Eucharist, parodidomi. What I received from the Lord, I passed on to you. Do you remember what he says? On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. He passes on, St. Paul passes on gifts, and Jesus refuses to pass on evil, okay? 
evil is exhausted, it is finished, it comes to its telos, its end, in the body of Christ on the cross. And the only way evil will flourish, the only way, the same way, <laughs> the same reason wrath will flourish, is when you stand outside the body of Jesus. There is wrath, but only when you say, I'll bear the sins of the world myself. And that's what happens when you play outside the realm of Jesus. If you're in Jesus and rejoicing in it, you got nothing to worry about. When you're outside of Christ, you're essentially saying, I will bear the sins myself and then watch out because wrath has not been exhausted then and neither is evil. And that's how evil permeates when people stand outside the body of Christ. If you're in Christ and you rejoice in it, all is well. Evil isn't passed on. And that's a very difficult thing because sometimes we move in and out, right? It's all, but this is, this is N.T. Wright on repentance. We ran this as the welcome for Wednesday. It's all about returning to true humanness. When you're outside of Christ, you're less than human because you're not in contact with he who is humanity itself, Jesus Christ. Okay? Yeah. I wrote that. I'm not lying to you. I actually wrote that down. I wrote down Hauerwas on. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a very, it was very odd, it was a very, it caught the group off guard because the group that was there were a few token Lutherans, but a packed house of mainly kind of Wheaton College evangelicals. And there's a sense in which, you know, idea, and the idea of just war or righteous judgment or righteous anger flourishes in that group. And for, rightly so, given their theology. But Hauerwas stands up and he, one, he began, I think, with an expletive in his first sentence, which then set the Wheaton crowd off. You know, it was great. Great to watch. I didn't feel so bad anymore. Um, he starts off swearing in his first sentence, and these Wheaton College kids are like, you got to be kidding me. But by the very end, I remember he told the story. Someone asked the question, because he was, he was talking all about Christian nonviolence, and not in the way of the law, like you ought to not be doing this, but in the way of the gospel, as in if you're so caught up in the life of Jesus, violence is really not an option. And, and this is what he says here, justice is not vengeance. It's not dropping bombs, right, or getting back at people. But Hauerwas then pauses, and, and the guy said, well, what if, an, he poses the question, what if, what if an intruder enters your house with a gun and plans to kill your family? And there was kind of this long pause, and everybody in the crowd thought he had gotten Hauerwas, you know? And he says, sometimes you just got to die. And that that is the mark of a Christian. That doesn't mean you don't defend your family. I think if you pressed him on it, he would have explained, now here's what I mean. But the whole notion that sometimes you just got to give yourself up. 
And that justice, the Jesus way, doesn't mean getting back at people. Sometimes it means being brutally beaten for what you know is right. Uh, that's what Howard Ross is trying to say. Because on the cross, Jesus doesn't get back at anybody. In fact, even in his dying breath, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Very different way of looking at justice. And what you do is you trust the Lord. In fact, I, the psalm I read this morning was, I'll just read it to you. Not the one for, uh, not the one upstairs, but um, the one I, I read in this morning devotion. Um, this is how the Lord sorts it out. Now, this is Psalm 9, verse 16. Now the Lord makes himself known. Justice is done. The wicked man is trapped in his own devices. Okay? You don't need to sort it out. The Lord will sort it out. And he sorts it out. The Lord's way of justice is at times he traps people in their own devices. Okay? Or their words come back to get them. But you let the Lord do that, not you. Make sense? All right. What else? having fun now. I want to know what you think. Would you like this? Do you like this chapter? Lee, <laughs> you're my only hope in this crowd. Go ahead, Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah, right. Except for Jesus. Yeah. I'm, and this plays into the question of humility, and, and he says it actually at one point. I can't, I know I've got it written down here someplace, but um, I'm glad he said it. Uh, but I'm always struck by how difficult it is, and maybe it's just because we haven't quite learned it, 
myself included, how difficult it is to one, when, when there's been wrong done to apologize, but even more striking to me is how difficult it is then to forgive. There, he had a whole little section on that. And it plays off the idea of humility, Christian humility and engaging evil. In fact, if you look at page 227, first full paragraph, it's down near the bottom. Nor does working for reconciliation and restorative justice mean ignoring the fact that there is, that there is such a thing as evil. You've got, you've got to recognize it. There is evil. And to just deny it is um, you're not in touch with reality. Indeed, it demands that we take evil actions very seriously indeed. Only when they have been named, that's faces. So the whole idea that, you know, well, evil's floating around or accusations without data. When they've been named, acknowledged, and dealt with, okay? Named is, here is what's happened. Acknowledged is, I'm very sorry. Dealt with is, I forgive you. Let's square things up. Only when that happens can reconciliation take place. Otherwise, all we have is a parody of the gospel, a kind of cheap grace in which everybody pretends that everything is all right while knowing perfectly well that it isn't. Okay? But I'm, I, I'm struck by how difficult especially, well, all three of those, the naming, the acknowledging, and the dealing with. But especially once you've made it past the naming and acknowledging, the dealing with part how difficult it is when people say, I'm very sorry, and how difficult it is to know what to say at that place. I can't quite figure it out. It's almost, it's almost as though we haven't learned how to confess and forgive. And I don't, there are no, I don't mean anything by private confession there. I'm talking just normal Christian life stuff. We haven't learned how to acknowledge sin a biblical way. Matthew 18, you don't tell everybody and then a few and then come one-on-one. -on -one. You come one-on-one, -on -one, you take a brother, and then you tell the community. We haven't quite learned how to do that, but when we learn how to do that, then we acknowledge what we've done, and forgiveness sometimes doesn't follow through because we don't know what to say in response to that. That's why we love you. Here we go. Pastor Bruzy, did you have something? Well, it is, it is the most unnatural of all acts. Yeah. And so it's a learned skill. Right. And, and people who haven't, uh, haven't learned the skill then have no recourse in what turn out to be the most difficult of human interactions, yeah. which is to say, I'm sorry. That takes, a, that takes just a, a load of uh, recognition of what right and wrong is. Yeah. We're not very good knowing what right and wrong is. Mm -hmm. We're not humble enough to say that about ourselves. Right. We we mistake the notion of being uncomfortable with the notion of truth or rightness. So right. if it makes us uncomfortable, it must not be true. Right. If it hurts us, it must not be right. Yeah. Wow, none of that is true according to Jesus. Was Jesus on the cross? Hurt like hell, literally. And was it right? The rightest thing that ever was. Right. And then what happens is now you put that into a relationship with somebody else yeah. who is now you're uncomfortable and they're uncomfortable and if you haven't been taught from little on to say mm -hmm. I'm sorry I forgive you now it's over and what good can we do yeah if you haven't learned to say that and we honestly most people don't you go your whole life yeah. covering up acting like things didn't happen 
having some notion of love that doesn't doesn't name law and gospel, right? It, you, it just goes wrong in so many directions. And he banged on. He, I mean, he he's I was banged surprised on. at how hard he went I, after. Yeah. He was. I mean, when he said, "We just pretend like nothing's happening," yeah. that's the church. Yeah. Right. If if there's one thing after all the years I've been a pastor, if there's one thing what we're worst at, Matthew 18 is it. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody lip services it, and nobody does it. Right. And it is you go, you go alone, you go to be reconciled, yeah. and this is what you say. Hardly anybody can do that in the church. They do everything else. We do everything else. It's I do everything. Yeah. Else oh, that. yeah. Yeah. It's it is. Uh, it's just not there. It's very. Yeah. It's strange. Uh, it's it's interesting. You use the word. It's so it's unnatural for us when it should be the most natural thing we do. This is, this is this is Jesus. Yes. It is. It's it's. Uh, and ultimately, it's because we don't understand the cross. Right. And what happens there. And what happens on yep. the cross. I remember early when I was here, I actually preached on this. And that week, my family, I said Jesus was the biggest sinner that ever lived, quoted Luther. My family left the church over that. Met with yeah. me on Tuesday, transferred on Thursday, mm -hmm. because I called Jesus a sinner. Mm -hmm. It was right out of the text. Right. He who, who knew no sin. The text actually says, became right. sin. Right. Yeah. Well, nobody will talk about my Jesus that way. It was an utter miss on what the cross is about. Right. Because we have our own idea about Jesus. We don't want the Jesus that's in the text or on the cross. So he did an extraordinarily gentle way of bringing us through that in some ways by naming it. And then, see, the, the glory of what Wright can do is he can show you what life looks like on the other side. And then you don't have to have it as law. You can say, wow, I would. it's almost a lure. I, I would love to live like that. I would love to have... I'd love to have friends like that. I would love to be in a community like that. I would, I would love that for my own life. I would, I would love to have this common ground. I would love to have this possibility for reconciliation. Mm -hmm. I would love to recognize who Christ is and share that with other people on Christ's terms, not on our terms or my terms or yours. Right. And, that, and that's why the church in some sense is a skills course. Yeah, right. But that then means we need to put ourselves into the care of those who can teach us. Right. Because it's like learning to play golf. You can you can self-teach your – I mean, you can be a self-taught golfer, but it's you won't be Tiger Woods. <laughs> Absolutely. You're always <laughs> going to be right and out of bounds. I know, man, especially when you're a lefty. But if, you're, but, if, but, if you, but if you have somebody who can say, well, now, ooh, that's, that's yep. not even a good start. Let's start well, with – Well, and that's what – and for those of you who don't know, I mean, that's essentially what we do in confirmation. Yes, exactly. It's we teach a it as a skill course. course. We don't exactly. just say this is prayer. We say this is how you pray. Or, for instance, with confession, we don't just say this is confession. We say we're actually going to do it. We're going to teach you. We're going to walk you through it. Um, and I think that's been very helpful for them. Well, because that's what Jesus did. The disciples yeah, don't right. presume they know how. He's, they say, how when do you, you pray? pray? And then he says, right. when you pray, this is how you do it. It doesn't mean that's like so many other things. It's the last word. That's the first word. But if you don't have the first word, yep. no other words come. If you're yeah. wrong in your first assumption, everything that follows is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, it means to turn around. Yeah.
Yeah, and I think what, what you're saying is actually a very helpful thing, which is what you're, what you're saying is repentance is a gospel word, mm-hmm. not a law word, right? Ask a former vicar, he would disagree, but we won't name names. Come on, lighten little up a little. Just having fun, man. Rachel, get this group in order yeah, over I mean, here. What's I mean, going on? Part of what's part of what's so helpful in what you say is that um, you see. Part of the reason uh, forgiveness is so unnatural that the victim goes to the oppressor, yeah, and says, "Please don't hurt me anymore." Yeah, right. And it takes it takes a it takes a load of. Jesus going on in the oppressor to say, I did hurt you, I will change, Mm -hmm. I won't hurt you again. Because here's the thing, that's not natural. The natural thing in the world is for the powerful to stay powerful, see? So what you're nailing is exactly a change in the sinner, which is a change in the oppressor, which is a change in us to weaken ourselves, and that's to become like Christ. That's brilliant. That's exactly what it's supposed to be. But that just, that, that's so hard. And if you don't start learning it till you're 40, 50, 60 years old, you miss a whole lifetime of practice. You want to know why marriages go bad? Because people can't say, I was wrong and you were right. You know why friendships go bad? Because people can't say, that was my fault. People can't own it. Mm-hmm. You know, We do everything but own it. Absolutely. Well, I, that's exactly what I mean. Exactly. Yes. Ex- exactly. Right. Confession without excuses. Absolutely. Absolution it is without the pro- Exactly. It is the prodigal son. Confession can make no excuse. And this happens. This happens all the time. It's very and and yeah. Well, you said it. So. Then you have an ob. Yeah. And that's why you need an objective standard. Yeah. You can't call a sin a sin unless Jesus calls it a sin. Right. You go see Jesus. You go about see Jesus. So unless you have, this, hard, ha- and this happens a lot. People say, yeah. Yeah. I I can <laughs> now see no I I'm not laughing at I'm no, la- I'm agreeing. The I mark agree. of Gaining's growth is that he wouldn't say what I'd say at this point, which is it doesn't matter how you feel, <laughs> because here's the thing: there's it's nothing. Right. Yes. Oh yes. I mean, there there are plenty of examples. Yeah. Go to Jesus. I mean, oftentimes people. I mean, I'll just. Well, it's it. Go ahead. Yeah. No, what Jesus thinks is solid ground. Yeah. What well, right, he's thinking, he's the oppressor. Yes. Yep. Right. Yeah. 
Does Jesus ever hurt your feelings? Well, he hurts mine all the time. He does. <laughs> mine too. I mean, that's the thing. Because Every Saint, Sunday at about 740, <laughs> no, 754. I'm a damn sinner. <laughs> exactly. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Now, that hurts my feelings. Well, that's good. You're better than I am then because uh, it's, it's a reality check for me. What's that? Oh, I don't, I think, well, now you're mixing apples and oranges. I don't think you're talking about people pretending not to be sinners. What you've just diagnosed is confession with excuses, which is, I'm very sorry if, you hear this all the time, I'm very sorry if you were offended by that, or I'm very sorry if I spoke in such a way that you didn't like. The problem is oftentimes we get offended too easily because we don't like the truth. That's why the prayer, uh, the prayer in, uh, this is so great, this is why the prayer that we ended with today that as your son has promised, we may be led into all truth. Now, you cannot like the truth, but as long as the truth is equal to Jesus, you really don't have a leg to stand on. Now, there are certainly missteps in delivery, but is it a sin to be offended by the truth? That's a question you have to sort out. Now, I'm offended by Jesus every son. I am. Because I can't believe that he would say some of the things he says. You, I mean, you must just have thicker skin than I do. I don't know. Um, yes, okay, good. So then why would he apologize for it? Good. So Jesus has the right to say it. So if someone says to you what Jesus says, you shouldn't be offended. Well, Jesus says in Luke 10, he who hears you hears me. Well, Luther says that about you. He says you're a little Christ. Well, here's the thing. This is what we. Oh, well. <laughs> he wants to be he demeaned. He wants to be demeaned. <laughs> well, here's the thing. You can, you can, I know that, I know that's your issue. I know that's your issue. That's been your issue for three weeks. But um, you need to line up your issue, your rub, with the objective biblical data. So here's what you've got. Jesus says, he who hears you hears me, to his, to his pastor. Okay? Now, as long as you don't talk outside of Jesus, and, and again, I pressed you three weeks ago. I said, give me an example where that's happened. As long as you don't talk outside of Jesus, you may not like what's said, but just as you come to confession and say it doesn't offend me, this shouldn't offend you either. And if you're offended, it's on you. It's not on Jesus because Jesus says what he says, and that's it. You also have your stewards of the mysteries. You give my gifts. You speak for me. Okay. Now, you can deny that, but that's a very... Boy, that is, that one, it's very un-Lutheran, very un-Lutheran, very unbiblical, um, because Jesus always works by means. He puts people into place to speak for himself. He's not here every day walking around talking. Now, it can be about you and Jesus, but boy, you're treading on thin ice, and that is a very miserable life at the end of the day. Very tough life. So I know that you're Rob, but you can't be offended when Jesus speaks truthfully. Like right now, you might be offended. You might be. But I'm just telling you what Jesus says. And if you've got a beef, as I said in the sermon two weeks ago, and I probably shouldn't have said it, if you've got a beef with that, take it up with Jesus. I mean, if that's your rub, ask him, why did you do that? And see what he says. 
And then read the text and see where he says it there. It's just, and it's very Gnostic. I mean, it's very, here's the problem with, with, with much of, let me finish. Here's the problem with much of Lutheranism. We say, I have this relationship with Jesus. What he says goes. I have a relationship with my pastor. He walks around in the flesh. But what he says doesn't necessarily go. And you've done this Gnostic thing, separation of matter and spirit. You've separated Jesus from the pastor and said, I can trust my spiritual Jesus. He's my friend. And I can't trust my physical, concrete, tangible pastor. That's a heresy. That is a heresy. So we can say that? Boy, that's a very, that's a very difficult thing to live with. It's just it's very tough. Go ahead. You, you had something to say. No, you, you, okay. Holly. Right, right. Yeah, right. No idea. I mean, I, I. Right. Which is a very Lutheran way of thinking. I think I think one of the other problems is is because we weren't we didn't grow up with this as a school's course we also didn't grow up and I can just say this for anybody well I'll say it at least from anybody my age and younger but we certainly didn't grow up making proper use of our pastors or the history of the last 2000 years of the church because we'll say for medical knowledge there's been this buildup of knowledge and and people who are really really good and smart in studies should dispense that. We'll say for legal knowledge, there's been a buildup of 2,000 years and or 4,000 years, and people who are really good and smart should dispense that. What we fail to realize is there has been, you know, a buildup of 2,000 years of pastoral knowledge, too. Gregory the Great, you know, he writes his great treatise already, uh, you know, fourth, fifth century about pastoral care of souls. I mean, there is a long tradition of this, but because we sort of have tilted toward this individualism of me and Jesus, which is exacerbated uh, first by the modern era and then by Americans, because we're all on our own. It's just Jesus and me. Um, what we've done is neglect basically the communion of saints, 2,000 years of really smart people, and especially 2,000 years of really smart pastors. And I'm not talking about us. I'm just talking about there are people who everybody recognizes in the church as brilliant 
curates of the soul, people who feel your soul, they know how to do it. Gregory the Great, Francis of Assisi, you know, Ambrose. They're pick, pick guys. There are guys who were known to be able to do this. And, and partly because we, we don't embrace that as our own, we're, we always have to relearn everything ourselves. And that's, uh, you know, that was my comment about um, on Sunday morning in Bible study where I didn't disagree with my confessor for the first 20 years I knew him. You see, it's very important for you to understand. I did everything he told me for 20 years, including going to the PhD program he put me in, moving overseas twice with my family. I did everything he told me for 20 years. Not because he was perfect or right. You have to understand this. Not because he was perfect or right, because he was better than I was, and he made me better than I would have been if I wouldn't have listened. Does it make sense? I mean, on my own, I'd have gotten to hear. With 80% of him being right, I got to hear. That was a great gift and a blessing. That's what the scriptures mean when it says, listen to the old men and the old women in the church. That's why we should be able to, I should be able to point, these new pastors should be able to point to you, women, they should say to their daughters, grow up to be like, you know, you should be able to do that in the church. But you've got to have some substance for them to point at you, otherwise they're giving their kids bad data. So, you know, we know that we're stretching you. You know, we hear the criticism that we're not reading Lutheran things, and, you know, we hear, you know, we hear that, you know, sometimes people don't think that we know what we're doing. I mean, we hear all that. There's every chance that it might be the opposite, which is we're, we're meeting you where you are and trying to push you into things you've never, ever heard before, but the rest of Christianity has, has, has rejoiced in for 2,000 years. And you know what? Your heart's only going to beat so many years. Get busy. It's fun. This is great. I thought one of the, you know, one of the great things about this book, I mean, I don't know how you can read this and not just, you know, kind of weep for joy when he talks, you know, when he talks about, I mean, I, I don't know if you hear this as the lore of the gospel, but I was, I was just stunned by, you know, this is two, you know, on 229. I mean, the world in its present state is out of tune with God's ultimate intention. And there will be a great many things, some of them deeply woven into our imagination and personality, to which the only Christian response will be no. They were different. They were different than other people. Jesus told his followers that they wanted to come after him. They'd have to deny themselves and take up their cross. The only way to find yourself, he says, is to lose yourself. A strikingly different agenda from today's it's all about me finding out who I am philosophies. From the very beginning, 2,000 years, Writers like Paul and John recognized that this isn't just difficult, but actually impossible. You can't work it out in yourself. We can't do it by some kind of Herculean moral effort. The only way is by drawing strength from beyond ourselves, the strength of God's spirit on the basis of our sharing of Jesus' death and resurrection and baptism. New creation is not the denial of our humanness, but it's reaffirmation. And there will be a great many things that are deeply counterintuitive and initially perplexing. To which the proper Christian response is yes. And that's the difference. The difference is when you engage, when you, when you come to something in the church or someone in the church who is deeply counterintuitive and initially perplexing, is your initial action no, that couldn't possibly be right, I never heard that before. I didn't learn it from my confirmation pastor, and it's uncomfortable for me, therefore it must be wrong. Or is it, 
wow, the communion of saints are bigger than I am, and Jesus is bigger than I am, and there's people smarter than me, and there's 2,000 years of history, and the church has flourished by doing it, so uh, I screw up everything I've got, then I'll say yes, even if I don't understand it, I'll still just have it, because that's what Jesus says. There is this huge body called the church that has been saying for 2,000 years, this is what Jesus says. And no one of us can come and say, sorry, I say something different. Scripture, says Scripture, is not a matter of private interpretation. Every Sunday in the Creed we say, I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the church. I give them the benefit of the doubt. I presume the best about them. I love them. I follow them. I believe in the communion of saints. The resurrection of Jesus enables us to see how it is that living as a Christian isn't simply a matter of discovering the inner truth of the way the world currently is or simply a matter of learning the way life is in tune with a different world and thus completely out of tune with the present one. It is a matter of glimpsing God's new creation. It is the life after life after death of which Jesus' resurrection is the start, not the end. All that was good in original creation is reaffirmed. All that has corrupted and defaced it, including many things which are woven so tightly into the fabric of the world, and I'll just say, into you and into me, as we know it, that we can't man imagine being without even ourselves, even our opinions, even our hurts will be done away with. Thank God. And in my margin, you know, I'll just tap it, I'll just top it off here because I'm going all the way. <laughs> I have written down here trust, obedience, and discipline all gospel words and all presuppositions for the Christian life. Discipline just means don't fall over the edge. Show some restraint. Don't sleep with somebody who's not your wife and not, not your wife. You know? Don't get drunk every night and self-medicate. Curb your tongue. Because when you say things, you know what? Sometimes relationships can't recover from the things you're gonna say. Don't break community. Don't presume the worst. That's people helping you. That's people loving you. That's people showing you what it is to be Christian. Confess without excuses. Forgive without conditions. Make restitution where you're able. If you rob the bank and then you come to my office and confess, we forgive you, take the money back, and go with you to the police officer and say, please don't be too hard on him. He's already been forgiven. That's how life works. Unfortunately, We've never had that kind of care because we've never cared enough about each other.
maybe it's her, and maybe it's, you know, men therapy or something like that. Yeah. It would happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're talking about, you know, like, and it just starts taking a ride home. And it's easy. Right. There's a, cou- there's a couple well, things you have to think. You got it? I mean, I, I well, I, mean, I always defer to you. Go right ahead. I'm, I'm very curious what you have to say. All right, so there's two. There's a couple of questions you have to ask yourself. You're, you're wishing him into hell. Is that fair? I'm just summarizing what you said. I'm putting it as hard. I'm putting it as harshly as I can. I'm just summarizing as harshly as I can. Hell would be too kind a place for him. It would be. There, I got you. Okay. Right where I want you. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it's a good thing because here's the thing. This is what we have to remember. The law is a good thing. And, you know, this is going to sting a little bit, but here goes. All right. You wish him into hell. This is extraordinarily honest, okay? Does Jesus wish him into hell? Okay. Good. Yeah, good. Now just see, the thing is, is that while theology is very simple, it's also very taxing, okay? So you have a basic disagreement with Jesus. Do you want this guy to go to hell? Jesus wants him to be, go to heaven. Maybe sit next to you. I want Jesus to get what he wants. I want him oh. to understand that I'm human. Thank you. I good. Perfect. Okay, perfect. So this is this is perfectly done. You could not have done this better. So you want one thing. Jesus wants another. But, and this is the mark of faith, you will say, Jesus can have his way. And the extraordinary difference there is the difference between people who struggle mightily to let Jesus have his way, which is what you are and what you're describing, and you may struggle with that your whole life, versus people who don't struggle at all. And that we have time all day long, all day long. This is a place filled with the Christian church, not just St. John. The Christian church is a place where people struggle to get it right in the way of Jesus. That's what the church is. That's why we confess every week. That's why we have the Eucharist every morning in Lent. We're struggling to get it right. That's the way of Jesus. And he knows that about us, and he loves us, and he helps us. And as soon as you say, I just want it your way, he is the kindest, most gentle, and most next to you creature in the universe. If you say to him, I'll have it my own way no matter what you say. There will be a day when you wake up and he's no longer there. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He wants you, but he'll not force you. And as Romans you know, 2 or 3 begins, do you presume on the righteousness of Christ, which means you just think you can always buck him and he's always going to be there? No, this even happens with churches. Churches who tolerate sin in their midst, why would God keep coming back? At some point he leaves. So the extraordinary thing to distinguish is the struggle for Jesus. I want what you want, even though everything in me rebels against it. And, and there's a dozen ways to say this. I don't care what you want. You can do what you want. I'm going to do something else. I'm too busy for you. There's a thousand ways to deflect it, right? So you're fine where you are, and you'll go through that someday. We'll meet back here in five years, and let's see how you still feel about this guy. You'll have had the Eucharist say 400 more times, and you and Jesus will probably a little. No, you're young. You're, you're, you're young. Just keep saying it. So in other words, despite the fact that now, I mean, it's 
next to you. Oh, well, I'm thinking once I get up there, I'll be okay with it. That's what I'm thinking. Once I get up there, I will not feel the way I do right now, and I get that. That's right. I, I will. So I'm, I'm okay. I mean, if, if he's up there because everything's going to be all great. But he's that. here, and the future is now. But the, but the reality is, now here, I'm going to take the other side of Darlene's comment and also one from up here. Is I, I want to recognize, now I'm going to swing back around and recognize the reality of that sort of pain. So when a, when a pastor or anybody says to somebody, for instance, let's just take a child dies, okay? The stupidest thing pastors can do is to say, you know, just get over that. She's in heaven. It's all going to be fine. That is not the way we are because we love deeply. And so we're hurt deeply, and it takes us time to recover. The whole point of the church is to shorten the recovery time. And we know exactly how to do it. See, this is, this is what the problem is. We know exactly what to do, but nobody's ever taken the time to figure it out. So we know how to pair you up. We know how to give you psalms to read. We know how to pray with you. We know how to do confession. We know how to support you in the, in the congregation. We know, we know how to give you the Eucharist. And we know how to go with you at your own death so your own death then becomes the expectation of seeing your child again and you go to that glory. Here's the thing. If you're dying, you want us next to you. We know what to do. Well, yeah, but I, I mean, I think if this, this, this is a guy, this is me when I was a kid. If I understand. Me, I understand. I, I just don't know that as a, as the sinner that I am, right. I guess what you're saying, and from what I understand, is you're saying then it's okay for you to leave. Well, as long as it's for the child, because I, I mean, I want him dead or not. Mm-hmm. If this mm-hmm. is his destiny to be in heaven, so be it. Right. But while I'm here and I'm human, right. We'll struggle toward it, and then, but then don't be possessed by it because we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. So say your psalms and get protected and hope, hope you never see it. You know. But what happens if I die and I've never been honored on a deathbed? I think that's what my, my I thought you I thought you said you'd been to the Eucharist. Well, I have. But you then, but well then so well the the other things that they're like, well, if, if, if this is my second death, which I mean, no. this is a long way of looking at it. No, no. Then <laughs> it's Thank you. Life. No. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is so good. So. I just <laughs> oh, this is oh boy, it's not that at all. Here, here, it's just that you you see how the little things that we we make mistakes on crop up to be big things. So here here's what you're saying, and you'll never say this, but this is what you're saying, which is you can go, you can be here every Sunday, you can be baptized, you can receive the gifts, you can go to the Eucharist, but if you got this one thing that's kind of a burr in your heart, that's going to send you to hell. Come on, that no, is not, not good. Good, and that great. Good. So let's so reset the question. So what for just a second though you reset it in terms of justification rather than sanctification. So now, if you're not going to hell, then my answer is, we know how to get you to live your Christian life to the fullest. We work on that. That's what we do with people who are hurt. That's what we do all day long. Well, not despite, it's like saying despite the fact that you have diabetes. It's not despite it, it's just that we work on it. If that's your trouble, then we diagnose it. It's very much like going to the doctor. You diagnose the problem, and then you apply the proper medicine, and then you get better. The pastor is a curate of the soul. He's a physician for the soul. That has been utterly lost over the, since in the modern times. That's been utterly lost because in, in modern times, and I mean since the French Revolution, since modern times, 
everybody's on their own. Well, here's the thing. We're not that good. We didn't say everybody's on their own for law and everybody's on their Do you drill your own teeth? <laughs> do you do that? No, nobody does that. Why do we do it with our souls? Most people don't even watch their own finances. Katie wants to talk, but I'm not letting them. I'm just going to keep going. Can, can you just wait just a second? And then let, you got anything you want to add to this? I don't know. I mean, I don't remember what we're talking about. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Good point, no, I man. think I think you're. I mean, I think you're exactly right. I mean, everything you said is right, and the liturgy itself is a skills course. If you want to learn how to forgive, you need to be forgiven. Right. So, be in contact with forgiveness. I mean, I would even push it further than going to the Eucharist. I would say, Gosh, you probably you probably want to come to confession, and just learn what it is to be forgiven yourself. And as you learn to forgive, or as you learn to be forgiven, as you are forgiven, you'll learn to forgive others. It, we're just teaching you how to live the Christian life. And can, but that can, happens. And, yeah, and when he says that, can you hear him saying, he's not saying you're a bad person. No. He's saying you've got an ingrown toenail. We know what to do with that. Okay, you take a sharp thing, <laughs> you stick it, you get another sharp thing. <laughs> it's going to hurt a little bit, but we know how to fix it. I mean, can you hear him saying that? Can you hear, can I, you hear him saying, I'm saying, I love you? I'll help you. It'll get better. What are you saying? I'm saying receive the gifts, yes. and then we'll talk about the Christian life. I'm saying receive the gifts, and that pushes you towards something else. You can't just go and say, I'm going to be able to forgive him. No, you need to be forgiven yourself. It's too hard. It's and too not difficult. just for that sin, it's for unnatural. everything. Yeah, You exactly. need to learn to leave everything at the altar, and then you can know that Jesus take care, takes care of even a guy like that. I mean, that's the reality. Uh, and I, I, I have a very personal experience that's somewhat similar, not a young child, but a woman in her 20s, raped, dazed, murdered, family member, and um, and the father of that woman said, I can never forgive, I can never forgive. In fact, the murderer is still on, he's still in prison. About every 10 years they say, oh, he's up for parole, sign this petition. We sign the petition, send it in. Now, after going to the Eucharist for 40 years, he finally says he can forgive this guy. So it can happen. You need to be forgiven to learn how to forgive. She's been, Barb's been very patient. Go ahead, yeah, go ahead. Barb, go ahead. Well, you have a you have a baptized brain, so you actually I would say you do learn something from people who are evil. You learn how you don't want to live. They actually do teach you something, uh, but you don't have a responsibility to judge the hearts of men. So you say, "Gosh, I've right." Well, yeah, I mean, you say, oh, "Boy, I'm not going to live like that." It's like your alcoholic uncle. It's not yours, but you know, 
proverbial alcoholic uncle. Gosh, he was a nice guy, but I'm not going to live like that. Right? You learn something from that. However, at the end of the day, regardless of how evil people have been, that's the reason we read the psalm, you let the Lord sort it all out. Even this guy that you named, you know, I would even, I would even discuss his apology, which is, you know, you don't look into, into the sincerity of someone's apology. Neither do we. People come in all the time and apologize. And I have every opportunity to say, did you really mean that? I never asked the question because I presume the best. And you know that at the end of the day, if they've duped you, Lord, I've been duped, and the Lord's going to sort it out. Same thing with your, your friend who claims to be a Christian and doesn't live like it. The Lord's going to sort that out. And you learn what you can, and you move on, and you thank God for that, even for the stuff you learn you wouldn't want to do. There's something to be thankful for in that. I think, yeah, with an objective data, objective standard, which is back to Kirby's question, with scripture, remember it's doubly important for pastors, it's not just you read your Bible and say, I don't think he's right, I'm going to go talk, you can do that, but to bring accusations requires a few more witnesses, and also remember this, for a pastor, uh, the punishment uh, could be doubly as difficult, you know, on the last day, you're not going to stand up and give account for thousands and thousands of people. You're going to give an account for your children, for your own life, for how you've been a wife and a mother and a worker. And But on the last day, and I hope it goes well, uh, you're going to stand up, we're going to stand up and say, we've had 5,000 people under our care. Now, how did they do? Where are they at? What was the Christian life like? So the stakes are high for pastors. So to make an accusation, the data needs to be high as well. And it's always objective. It's always from an objective standard. Here's what scripture says about pastors. Here's how you've lived outside of that. You've told me to do stuff I shouldn't have done. Can we please square this out? Is that, is that fair? Bishop? It's utterly fair. And, and uh, that's what we welcome, actually. Yeah. I mean, what we welcome is the objectivity. And, and here's, what, here's what people don't often understand about pastors. And maybe, I'm just going to speak for ourselves. Well, I'll speak for me and for Bruzek and for Nelson. <laughs> but we are very, very willing to apologize when we've done wrong. People often think, well, they're never going to apologize or they've never done, they don't think they've done anything wrong. Believe me, I go home every night and the last thing I say is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who sin against us. Um, but oftentimes it never gets to that point. So objectively, if things happen with a pastor, show them and tell them, but ask. Don't assert, just ask. Gosh, this is what Jesus says. Is this, what, is this what's going on? Is this what we're doing? And pastors, if they're really, if they actually believe their ordination catches them up in the life of Jesus and they speak to him, they're more than willing to say, gosh, I'm very sorry. No excuses. Not, I'm sorry if I did this. I'm sorry if I hurt you. I'm sorry, period. And then the proper response is, thank you, I forgive you. Now let's move forward. And <laughs> if the Lord forgets, so do you. Make sense? It's, it's easier said than done. But you need to understand our willingness to do, to do that. I mean, it's a humbling thing. It's very difficult at times. But, you know, after you begin to say you're sorry for things, 
becomes much easier to do it. I don't mean it's trite. I mean it's easy to be humble because that's what Jesus does. One last thing. Go ahead. You can if you bring that person as well. In fact, that would be the Christian thing to do to say, yeah, don't tell me, don't tell me they're offended. Well, Christ forbids the smoke. Yeah, yeah, bring them <laughs> and say, go to them and say, you're peeved, we need to go talk. And then drag them in and say, face to face, that's what N.T. Wright says, person to person, not I've heard this or you've done this to other people. Bring them in. When people and don't realize they sin with their very first word about somebody else. <laughs> You sin, you sin with your very first word about somebody else. If it's not to them, you've already sinned. I've heard. That's a sin. Well, if you see something going on or you hear somebody, if, you, if I say to you, she really upsets me because this is who she is and this is what she's done, I've already sinned. Because it's not about you and me. If your brother sins against you, go to your brother alone and go to be reconciled. Th this, is why, this is why, as I said on Sunday, Gossip is um, ecclesiastical jury tampering. You know, what you do is you try to fix the environment before anybody else can speak. So, I mean, that's what people are doing. It's a power thing, and power goes with sin. It's witchcraft. It's trying to control the day. Exactly right. So, if Jen bugs me, I go to Jen and say, you bug me, right? Sorry. I know. <laughs> Completely theoretical. I forgive you. Want to go for coffee? So, um... And if she's too weak, you can come with her. The whole notion of I'm too scared or I'm too weak, that's a red herring. You know, that might be true in a case of rape or child abuse or somebody has a lot of guns at home. I actually, in my first church, did have a woman who has to see on the side whose husband uh, kept her in fear of killing her, you know, and his first wife would disappear. I mean, those, those kind of things, those kind of things. I used to meet her at the cable TV office to talk it over where nobody would see her. True story. That's very different than your garden variety, what's going on here. But partly, you know, your question is a great question to sort things out, to think things through. But that's not our normal lives. Our normal lives are much, are much, our evil is just stunningly boring. It's just the same old stuff. I mean, it builds up kind of like if you add, you know, five pounds on your back every day, you know. It's by the end of the week, you're feeling miserable. But it's boring. You know, most of the, most of the stuff that we engage is fairly repetitive, boring, and it's just the same old stuff, people trying to get an, a, a leg up on somebody else. Um, that's not the community of faith, though. And I guess like, God's not going to give you the peace for your issues. Exactly right. You don't even, like, that's for you. Exactly. That you do? Because <laughs> he's got time available today. <laughs> 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 You know what you would find? If people would just, if we would all, if we would all just do it Jesus' way, I mean, read all the texts and just, just let Jesus have a run at it. I mean, if we would just for a year concede 
we will all do what the Lord bids us to do. I'm talking about really objective things like if you're baptized, you come to church on Sunday because that's the third commandment. No excuses unless you're after your assholes in a, in a well. You can stop and pull them out. But other than that, I mean, just imagine what that would be like. Or if everybody said their prayers every day. wonder what that would be like, you know. I'm not even going to the hard stuff of humility and, like, confronting people and going alone. I'm not even going there. I'm just talking about this is just baseline stuff. Like, what if everybody came to church? Well, that's hard to argue with, isn't it? Although some people do. Well, it seems to me that's very difficult. Because at some point, if you don't agree with that, you don't believe Jesus actually said anything. And there is no church. Mm-hmm. There's no nothing. There is no community. And part of it is, real deep down, it's our unwillingness to recognize what Jesus, in fact, says. And, and all the things he says about you enter through the narrow way and leave your mother and father and brother and sister behind. And this is very difficult. And I'm moving on. And not everybody finds the kingdom of heaven and lose yourself and be a light in the world. How about taking all of that seriously as opposed to all the other stuff that we kind of like about him that we take seriously, like, you know, God is love as if he's some kind of slob sitting next to us and love means license and you can do whatever you want. I mean, there's a reason he gets crucified. Because people, his, his message is unnatural. It is also the new Eden. And the Christian life is trying to put those two things together. They didn't run out of victims. There's a reason. Exactly. They didn't eat because they were hungry. They exactly. didn't run out of victims That's either. That's exactly right. All right. Yeah. I, I mean, this is difficult. I, I understand that it's difficult. I understand it's difficult because we're individuals and we don't like to hear about it. And I understand it's difficult because we're Lutherans. And we, as soon as somebody says good work, somebody thinks you're buying your way into heaven. But we started by trying to get way past that yeah. and to talk about the most joyful thing. I, I don't know. If you, had to, if you had to describe this book, you're toward the end now? So I just was asking. If you had to describe this book in a word, joy or sorrow, what would you say? Uh, All right. Well, the whole book's about good works. Oh, Betty, Betty, Betty. <laughs> Pastor, Pastor Gating, what did I say would be the one question somebody would what ask? What are we going to do next I week? <laughs> well, uh, come back and find out. Why don't you out. just come back and we'll surprise you, okay?